You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. Coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 377 of this podcast. Today is April 24th, 2022. Good morning, Sunday morning. Today, I want to talk a bit more about denominations in depth. It's a Sunday morning. We're going to church this morning, Lord willing, as long as we don't have a whole bunch of the family wake up sick again like Last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we skipped out on church on Easter, and that's just awful, right? There's two services you're supposed to attend. If you attend no other services, you're supposed to attend Easter and Christmas. you got to go to at least those two, right? At least that's what some people think. I'm going to skip the whole rest of the year, but I'm going to be there on Easter, and I'm going to be there on Christmas. But that's not how we think, obviously. We don't think to ourselves, aha, it's Easter. We have to go. Not when over half the family is sick, has some kind of a cold, something going on. I think it was the weather change, just up and down and up and down that got to us. We still have just a little bit of it hanging on. And then yesterday, the temperature dropped so much. The high was like 30 degrees cooler than it had been the previous you know, couple of days, past couple of days. But we are planning on going to church this morning and that'll be good. I am only able to attend every other Sunday and that's just what it is. That's what it has to be. Now it is interesting to me when I look at the New Testament church, I see it says that they met together daily in one another's homes. And they met in one another's homes is interesting. And also the fact that they met daily. Now, how often how often should a Christian attend? Should it be at least twice a year, Christmas and Easter's? Or should it be every Sunday? Should it be most Sundays? Do you need to be there more Sundays than you're not? Uh, or should it be every day? Few to no people I have ever met would say it should be every day. Almost nobody holds that view that it should be every day. But the early church did meet every day, and that is curious. And they met in one another's homes, and that is curious. And now maybe, just maybe, not everybody was meeting every day but there was some kind of a church meeting every day. That's possible. I don't know. If that's the case, I don't know. I would presume life happens, but it's a curious thing that the church has moved historically, for instance, to Sunday worship. Why do we have at least once a week on Sundays? Do you know why? Have you ever researched that out? Have you ever been curious? Why Sunday? 
Why does it need to be Sunday? Especially if the early church was meeting every day, then Tuesday could have been just as good of a pick. Thursday could have been just as good of a pick. Saturday, for that matter, was the Sabbath. It still is the Sabbath. It's regarded from sundown to sundown. Friday night is the beginning of Sabbath, and it lasts until Saturday night. So why is our weekly observance, our weekly fellowshipping together, all together in local churches, not on Saturdays? Why is it on Sundays? Now, there have been groups that have latched onto that bit, and they have said, I think, a little bit crazily that Sunday worship is a mark of the Antichrist or some such. That's a little overboard. That's a, a little dramatic, don't you think? I mean, the the church in the New Testament was meeting together daily in one another's homes. That would include Sunday. So on what basis do you say that Sunday morning worship is a mark of the Antichrist? The early church worshiped on Sunday. Ah, uh, yes, okay, yes, but they didn't exclusively or primarily or yes and there's there's history there yes i know i know i know still it is curious when you look at church history the things that have been disagreements and how they've been handled uh you you really do shake your head sometimes i certainly shake my head sometimes over some of the disagreements and i just find myself confused like why why is this a controversy? Why was this a big deal? Yes, I realize somebody was very forcefully pushing a certain interpretation, a certain theory, a certain teaching, a certain practice, and that was concerning at the time. But sometimes it can be confusing that this was a big deal back then because it's it maybe isn't a big deal now. All the while, it's at least a possibility that part of why it's not a big deal now is because they addressed it back then. We shake our heads now and we say, oh, that's just kind of silly. But we think that's kind of silly because it, it's not an issue by and large. It might be on the fringes, but for the most part, the church has resolved that question long ago. Speaking of denominations and disagreements, I have an apologetics talk scheduled for this coming Wednesday night. And I've started the PowerPoint presentation. I got that a uh, good bit of the way put together yesterday afternoon. 14 slides thus far. I think I've got five to 10 minutes. So I add another six slides and I'll be at about 30 seconds a slide which is a brisk pace, but that's fine. That's totally fine. The topic is why are there so many denominations and does so many denominations undermine the truth of Christianity? And the part I have to shore up and finish up in the slide deck is that last part, that last bit of the question. I'm building up to it trying to explain more of why there are so many denominations. 
But that second part of the question, that's an interesting question. Does it undermine the validity of the Christian faith? Does it undermine the truth or invalidate the truth of Christianity that there are so many denominations? Because obviously we don't all agree. There wouldn't be so many denominations if we all agreed. Well, here's my question in response to the question. Was it promised that we were all going to agree? Riddle me that. If it was promised that we were all going to agree all the time, well then, yes, it's very surprising that we don't. And yet, that was not promised. If it were promised that there would never be error, that there would never be false teachers, there would never be false teaching, then we should be very surprised to find error and false teachers and false teaching, false gospels, false brothers, wolves in sheep's clothing. We should be very surprised to find that we have to teach only that which accords with sound doctrine. Now, if there was nothing else, if everyone in the church always only taught what was in accordance with sound doctrine, we wouldn't have to be told. It would go without saying, but it doesn't. Of course, it doesn't. The implication of the command is that the command needs to be given. That's part of why we get all offended when somebody tells us something super obvious. It's like, what, do you think I'm stupid or something? Why are you telling me that? I know I'm supposed to do that. Of course I'm going to do that. Gosh, the guy thinks he knows so much, thinks I'm a flipping idiot. Man. But sometimes, sometimes... We need to be told simple, basic things. And sometimes things are not quite so simple and basic as we might imagine. What is sound doctrine, for instance? Riddle me that. In the book of Acts, for instance, between chapters 13 and 15, you have Paul and Barnabas at Antioch, and you have Gentile believers who have come to Christ and you also have what's referred to as the circumcision party. And the circumcision party holds that these Jewish uh, Christians are actual Christians. And those Gentile Christians, so-called, are not actually Christians unless they are circumcised. They need to observe the law of Moses. They need to observe all of the Old Testament law in order to be saved. And so they are promoting this and they come to town in Antioch and Paul in Galatians records that Peter had been associating with the Gentile believers prior to the arrival of these Jews of the circumcision party. And then when they showed up, he all of a sudden started keeping the Gentile believers at arm's length, stopped associating with them because he was afraid of the circumcision party. He was afraid of offending them. He wasn't afraid of offending the Gentile believers, but he was afraid of offending the circumcision party. And there's an interesting little phrase used in Galatians when Paul talks about this. He says, this little bit about from James. There were Jews who had come 
from James. And that would be the same James that wrote the book of James, the letter from James, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I want to say it's my favorite book of the New Testament, uh, epistle-wise. I like John. I like the Gospel of John. I like the book of James. But there's this disturbing possibility that between Acts 13 and Acts 15, you have maybe James not being quite so clear on these things. As in, not that he understood and he just was miscommunicating, but he he might have genuinely been a bit confused. Because when you read in Acts 15 about the Council of Jerusalem, how Paul and Barnabas were sent as part of an envoy to talk with the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem about this question of the circumcision party, whether Gentile believers needed to be circumcised. James weighs in, but he's not the first to weigh in. So maybe, just maybe, what you have is James being persuaded in the course of conversation. Possibly. Seems like there's some debate about that, about exactly what is meant But I, in my mind, I think to myself, if Peter needed to be corrected, then it's at least plausible, it's at least possible that James, half-brother of Jesus, needed to be corrected. We are given all scripture as profitable for, among other things, correction. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, maybe. But they have this back and forth discussion where some of the things that they're saying, as with uh, teach only what accords with sound doctrine, but make clear that this needs to be said. This was felt necessary. They felt it necessary to say these things. And I'll just read for you this passage from Acts 15 and you'll see what I mean. It says in the ESV, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. 
and all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So there you have it. Here you've got... This back and forth, this debating, this disagreement, this everyone's not exactly clear on what should be done here on the front end. And there's the one position clearly, forcefully stated, strongly believed in, apparently, that these Gentiles need to be circumcised. You have a party, (laughs) the circumcision party. Uh, That's not nearly as fun as... Some parties that I can think of wouldn't be my first choice of a party to attend. But read here faction, the circumcision faction. They hold that circumcision is necessary. And meanwhile, Paul and Barnabas, (laughs) I, I love the way this is phrased, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Isn't that great? No small dissension and debate. That is to say, they really had it out. They really had a long, probably tense, uh, animated, agitated, worked up debate about this. And there's a couple of things that we can learn from that. I mean, for one, this question of why are there so many denominations, it happens just like this. It actually happens exactly like this. There's a question. Hey, circumcision, it's in the scriptures. It's in the Bible. What do we do with it? Well, we'd better tell people to be circumcised. We'd better tell these men to be circumcised. God said, no, I don't think so right? And you're off. You're off to the races. (laughs) And all of a sudden you've got this group forming over here, stroking their chins, stroking their beards, looking very serious. Oh yes. No, it's very important. You know, look at the state of society right now. People aren't required to do anything. It's too easy. Yeah, no, I, we, we need to really draw a hard line in the sand and let these Gentile Christians know. I mean, you're going to have to make sacrifices, 
right? You, you hear talk like that in the church when there's a disagreement on something that's, is this related at all to what is happening in broader society, right? Is, is, is this guy getting circumcised or not a slippery slope? Moving on. <clears throat> but what is it that happens? Well, very often, a couple things can happen. One, you can have that disagreement be extinguished in short order as soon as someone, some bright soul, <laughs> some, uh, some very original concerned citizen on the sidelines will jump in and say, Hey brothers, I, you know, I, I think we're getting way too worked up about this. And wait, you, it, it, does it really matter? Is this a really big deal? Is this really important? It's not as important as unity. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. That's that's helpful. Except we should not have unity at the expense of the truth of the gospel, right? Like if this is a gospel question, if at the core here is great error, unsound doctrine, then we need to get to the bottom of it. You know, it's like it's like the unity party. Right? You have the circumcision party, and then you've got the unity party, which is almost sometimes I think like the castration party. And, and I can make that joke, by the way. I, it is okay for me. That is within bounds. Galatians 5.12 set the precedent. <laughs> C.S. Lewis set the precedent. Take it up with C.S. Lewis and the Apostle Paul. I'm in good company. C.S. Lewis says we castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. We, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. And we have people we have people who do that in the church. You're having a substantive debate about something and somebody's getting agitated over here and somebody's getting a little worked up over there and some noble soul with a noble sentiment jumps in and drops that trump card right on the table. Unity. Mm. Oh, he said unity, guys. That's the... Safe word. <laughs> we we got to stop. Got to stop discussing this now. Got to just come to a conclusion right now. Right meow. Everybody agree. I'll let you catch up. I'll, I'll give you a minute. I'm sorry. Um, no, it, it, but, but this is what happens. I, let's say it was circumcision. It's not circumcision anymore. And we can scratch our heads and say, boy, it's so weird that they got that worked up about circumcision. Yeah, but part of why we think that is because they resolved the question of circumcision. I mean, you, yeah, you have half a million Messianic Jews around the world who are not all still clear on that. But the other 2,600 million of us are pretty well satisfied. You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. But the unity party, they want 
small dissension and debate. They want small dissension and debate. Or none. They have a false idea of unity. And if we're not careful, we will have unified churches. We could have one big ecumenical church around the world that all decides to agree together on error and false teaching and bad doctrine. We're told to teach only what accords with sound doctrine. And if we're not careful, we will teach only what accords with bad doctrine. This is the whole reason why there was a Protestant Reformation. And actually the prescriptive for the Roman Catholic Church was unity, unity, unity. On what terms? How about unity on the terms of the reformers? No, 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 no. Then we're going to fall back on authority, the authority of popes and councils and tradition. Uh, well, how about falling back on the authority of God and his word? Triggered, speaking of no small dissension and debate. But this is Paul and Barnabas, which is not to say that Paul and Barnabas are always prescriptive, and yet there's nothing here that is a chiding of them, right? There's nothing in the narrative, there's nothing elsewhere as you read further into the New Testament that is a chiding of Paul and Barnabas here, that they're rebuked, corrected for having, and I quote, no small dissension and debate with them them being the circumcision party, some men who came down from Judea. This is a big deal. And this is one of the ways that denominations come to be, is you have something like a council of Jerusalem at a denominational level, whatever the denomination is, they get together to decide, what do we make of CRT? What do we make of gay marriage? What do we make of transgenderism? What do we make of creationism. What is our position on these things? What is our teaching going to be on these things? And without fail, you will get a faction, a party who either wants to be excessively severe and strict and legalistic, or they want to be excessively indulgent, permissive, antinomian, which that just means lawless. Let's throw out God's authority in his word in the name of obeying him. What? Yeah, we're going to obey this overarching broad principle of loving our neighbor, but also ignore what God says about how to love our neighbor and what love might require when our neighbor is living in sin. For instance, calling them to repentance. For instance, not celebrating and approving of their sin and affirming it. But you will get factions and denominations that want to get very strict on something like KJV only, right? The King James Version of the Bible is the only legitimate version. All these others are totally corrupt and not actually trustworthy. Okay, if that's your position, you're wrong. Also, we're not going to go along with you. But we'll have a debate. We'll have a debate, and if you still won't be persuaded, well, we're still going to not do the KJV-only thing. Well, in that case, we're just going to go across town and get our own building and start our own church. And if we can get several other churches to join with us, then pretty soon we've got a splintered denomination. 
this part of the denomination is going to call itself this modified thing based on the distinctive. And then what remains is going to be this other thing. And it'll call itself what it used to call itself. So you can tell who won the debate kind of by who had to form a new denomination and who didn't. But this is one of the ways that denominations come to be, is there is a disagreement. One could imagine in this case that you get the circumcision party refusing to accept the decision of the Jerusalem Council. No, we reject that. Well, good luck. Good luck. You're disagreeing with the apostles and the elders of the church. Good luck with that. If we had been promised, and with the time we have left, I want to address whether this all undermines the validity and trustworthiness of the Christian message, the Christian worldview, that there are so many denominations that we do split up over things like this. For one thing, I want to point out that God can use separations between Christians to accomplish his purpose. Also, in Acts 15, actually everything that we need to discuss this, I think, is in Acts chapter 15. But after you have this disagreement over the question of circumcision and the council of Jerusalem and the weighing and measuring of these things, you get Peter weighing in, you get Paul and Barnabas weighing in, you get James, half-brother of Jesus, weighing in. Not everybody's correct from the get-go. They arrive at being correct. They pursue unity by hashing this out. Important, important to note. Not by sweeping it under the rug. Not by, as a friend of mine recently admitted with regards to his marriage, actually, of all things. Yeah, we just don't talk about things. Yeah, problem, problem solved. Can't get in an argument about what to do with our family, how to parent our children, how to spend our time, how to spend our money, what our priorities are, what our hopes and dreams for the future are, what our opinions are on things. Can't get in an argument about all that if we just don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> it was totally serious too. Like he was like, like it's a good thing. Like it's <laughs> I'm just like, oh guy. Oh, where to begin? <laughs> That's a topic for another day. By the way, I'm working on a book about marriage, and this is why we got married. We're going to have to talk about communication because that dog don't hunt, brother. <laughs> In Acts chapter 15, I'll try and save myself here from getting into too much trouble. Moving on, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders of the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Quote, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, 
to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. End quote. <laughs> it's quite the short little letter, by the way. It's great. So when they were sent off, verse 30, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And you can imagine, there's a small sidebar. All the men are just like, oh, oh, good. (laughs) No one was as relieved as the men uh, to receive this letter. (laughs) They were very encouraged. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now, get this. Get this. Here's the other reason that sometimes denominations form. Verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, aha, what do you do with that? What are we supposed to make of this. On the earlier point, you have the circumcision party burdening Gentile believers about the law of Moses, as if it is not enough for you to have grace through faith and be saved thereby. You also need to follow the law. That's, as Paul points out in Galatians, that is a major threat. That's a significant problem. Galatians two eleven through 14 reads, But when Cephas, and it's funny that he refers to him as Cephas, by the way, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
Ooh, mic drop. And all God's people said, ouch, that's going to leave a mark. That's going to leave a John mark. So there's this very important disagreement, a very sharp disagreement. And we hear about it. So this is not gossip, by the way, actually, interesting thing. We need to be careful that we're not defining gossip as just anything that makes a Christian look bad or casts them in an unflattering light. That is not gossip. Gossip needs to be more narrowly defined. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves accusing the Apostle Paul of gossip here. It's important. It is important, not a minor thing. Just like with unity. How we define unity and how we define gossip are very important to the health of the church. Very important to the life and health of Christians as a guard against false teaching, false doctrine, and abuse in the church. I I could not mean that more. I am serious as a heart attack about it. But this, at the end of Acts 15, this is a very different kind of disagreement, it seems to me. Paul and Barnabas, what is your deal? You guys are ministering together? You can hear the unity guy chiming in, dropping that unity trump card on the table. Hey, guys, we need to be unified. Well, yeah, but unified in which direction? Riddle me that, Batman. Are we going to be unified in taking John Mark with us, or are we going to be unified in not taking John Mark with us? Because we can't quite agree on which would be better. Clearly, as I read this, clearly unity has to do with purpose. It doesn't mean that we're always agreeing. Even in their disagreement, their sharp disagreement, it says. Verse 39, sharp disagreement. Like, it was a little heated. It got a little bit tense. Even in their sharp disagreement, you don't have these guys, one or the other, abandoning the faith, resigning in disgust from being a Christian, from being a missionary. You don't have that. What do you have? You have them going their separate ways. You know, we read elsewhere, as much as depends on you, strive to live peaceably with all men. And sometimes the only way to live peaceably with people is to not live with them. <laughs> is you, you, you get some space. You get some distance. I can't talk to you right now. You're being impossible. Or I'm being impossible. Or we're being impossible. I'm going to go over there and work on something productive. And you're going to go over there in the other direction and work on something productive over there. And I love you dearly, but I just can't be around you right this second. Because... Now, non-Christians will key in on things like this. And they will suppose that this is somehow a defect. This is a bug in Christianity. No, this is not a bug in Christianity. This is not a self-contradiction. Again, going back to what are we promised? Are we promised that we are always going to agree? No. Okay, then it's not a contradiction when there arises a sharp disagreement. And I quote, we weren't promised that there was going to be smooth sailing, nothing but 
unity as defined by the likes of Joe Biden, our current president. Yeah, unity means y'all get over here and do what I say. How's that for unity? What? No. Sounds like totalitarianism. Sounds like tyranny, actually. It doesn't sound like unity. If we had been promised that there would never be error, there would never be disagreement, then, then the existence of error and disagreement, sharp disagreement even, would undermine the truth of Christianity. I'll give you that. But we're not. We're not promised that. And we shouldn't be naive. And also we shouldn't be intellectually lazy because sometimes the calls for unity have more to do with just a lack of intellectual rigor. You're wrong and you don't want to be shown to be wrong. And you don't want to work hard to actually make your point and prove it. You just want to lazily slink away and think whatever you want to think. And you really don't care. You're kind of apathetic. It kind of doesn't matter to you. But also, so what? Also, there's more to this than just whether you right now, right this instance, are appreciating the implications of these ideas. You need to have some humility too because sometimes it's laziness plus pride, which is a potent mixture. Laziness plus pride is a recipe for failure. And if we unify on the basis of laziness and pride, we are in trouble. God is not going to bless that. That is not going to prosper. That's not going to be fruitful. That needs corrected from the scriptures. You're not just wrong, you're stupid. Now wait just a minute. And you're ugly, just like your mum. <laughs> now here's a pop quiz. Is that what our sharp disagreements should be like? Is that how we should be discussing these things? You're not just wrong, you're stupid. And you're ugly. You're just like your mom. Uh, <laughs> no, the answer is no, okay? The answer is B, no. That is not what sharp disagreement should look like. Disagreement among brothers can be sharp and it can be animated and it can be long. No small, we read earlier in Acts 15. No small dissension and debate with them is what it says Paul and Barnabas had. Uh, with the circumcision party, the men from Judea. But you can have that without the ad hominem, without insulting the other person, without just being rude and nasty and abusive to them. You can have a heated debate. And that can be cathartic. And by that, I mean that can be cleansing for you and the other person. That can get a lot of things out in the open where they need to be in order to be addressed and corrected, not just with regards to potentially false teaching, a misshapen view of the gospel, but also our attitude, just our general attitude can be brought out into the open, like drawing poison from a wound. You might be humbled when you start hearing the things that come out of your own mouth. And you might need to be humbled. You might need 
to admit to yourself with some witnesses that this is what you really think. This is how you really feel. Hey, wait a second. That's ugly. That's awful. That was too far. Okay, you're right. Your mom's a very nice lady. Sorry. Sorry I said that about your mom. It's okay. I forgive you. But you are ugly. (laughs) Your mom's not, but you are. No, wait. No, I shouldn't have said that either. This is where denominations come from. Denominations come from there being a disagreement. Sometimes it is central and essential, like the disagreement with the circumcision party. That's a very critical to the gospel message disagreement. We have to have a unity on that, but not a quick unity and not a rushed unity because we're lazy and impatient and proud. We should be willing to roll up our sleeves and do the hard work of talking through this. Identify some gaps in everybody's understanding of the gospel, of God's character, of why we're here, of where we're going, of what we're supposed to be about. Identify the gaps along the way and address those and correct those. That's a great opportunity for us to learn and grow. And we shouldn't miss it. And we shouldn't skip it just because some people are going to get worked up and leave. You know what? If you're that fragile, if you're that easily offended that us having a discussion about this at length causes you to say, I'm out, deuces. Well, then, were you ever really part of us to begin with? Now, I'm not talking about doing the Mike Myers cat in the hat. You're not just wrong, but you're stupid thing. Yeah, people are going to get fed up with that in a hurry and say, no, I don't have to take that. I don't have to submit to that. But if you're sticking to the issues and people are just frivolous, they'd rather go home and watch the football game. They'd rather go home and work on their perfectly manicured lawns. That's another story. That's a different story. But again, though, I mean, some of the some of the disagreements are like Paul and Barnabas, just a few verses down, not seeing eye to eye with regards to John Mark. I think we should take him. No. No, he basically bailed on us last time. We're not taking him. Um, no, I, I really think we should take him. Uh, no. Okay. I'm going to take him and we're going to go that direction and you can take Silas and you can go that direction and we will just do our missionary work in separate fields. Are they unified? As long as the gospel's the same, as long as this is the same gospel, the same God, the same Christ, the same church with a capital C, it can be a different church with a lowercase c. That's the big idea. But that's all the time I got. I'm still trying to organize this information. Good luck to me, because I'm at nearly 10 times the amount that has been allotted to me for Wednesday night. (laughs) Wish me well. Pray for me. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.